Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Today, I am privileged to be with someone who I actually met quite a few years ago, Mike Barry, Director of Sustainable Business Plan A at Marks & Spencer's been with the firm for about 13 years. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, Plan A. Alberto, thank you, and, and great to catch up again. And it's, it's really timely catching up now because I think we're coming to the end of one era of sustainable or philanthropic or corporate responsibility business. We've been through a fairly steady phase, 19, mid-1990s through to sort of 2018, 2019, and we're about to tip into a very different approach. And let me explain why. When I first joined the business, the, the focus was on risk management, avoid bad stories happening in the press or with NGOs, don't make sure there's no kids in factories, there's no mm -hmm. dodgy pesticides in food. It was very much risk management. 2007, we launched a big ambitious plan, Plan A, because there's no Plan B for the one planning. We've got 100 commitments to really radically reduce Mark Spencer's social and environmental footprint. Less carbon, less waste, less water, better woods, better fish, better cotton. So all good stuff. And of the last decade or so, we've delivered over 300 different commitments and made MIS wow. a progressively better business. Fail 20, we're always very honest about that. Fail okay. is part of learning. But we've absolutely reduced the footprint of our existing business model. So Marks & Spencer is a retail that sells about 3 billion items a year, an item being a pair of slippers, a ready meal, a bottle of wine, a bunch of flowers. And each of those have less embedded impact than a decade ago. But you know what? It's still our existing business model. It's still consumption-led. We're still trying to sell in a difficult marketplace more stuff this year than we did last year. Right. And as we all know on this planet, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the crisis of well-being, of poverty and inequality, just flogging ever more stuff on a planetary level, we can't carry on. We need a fundamentally different way of consuming. So as we join this conversation together, Alberto, we... As a, one business amongst thousands of other businesses are grappling with this fact that the just making old capitalism less bad ain't good enough. Right. We need a radically different approach. And I think that's what we'll do over the next 20 minutes is explore what that radically different approach is. Yeah. I have this context of the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. 2030, it used to seem like it's a long way away, mm -hmm. but it's not. Tell us a bit about what keeps you uh, awake at night both because of what keeps you awake in terms of your challenges, but also what keeps you awake by your excitement. What is it that, you know, that's a low-hanging fruit or things that you can do but haven't quite been done just yet? So let, let me give you two, two responses to a good question, Alberto. I mean, you know, what drives me on is the growing evidence that climatically, socially, uh, in terms of biodiversity, we're running on empty now. The world, our biggest factory for the economy is nature. Right. Wherever you look, whether it's soil, whether it's insect numbers, whether it's um, the warming world, deforestation, plastics pollution, there's simply no more headroom to keep pumping bad stuff out into the, in, into the environment. We have to change. Eight million tons of, a year of plastics going into the oceans. Everybody knew that was bad, but everybody just kept Emperor's New Clothes nodding their heads saying, yeah. eventually something will turn up. It won't unless we all utterly change our relationship with plastics. Plastics in itself is a great material. It protects things, it's cheap, it's flexible, it stops waste. Fantastic. But the downside of plastic in terms of marine ocean pollution would far outweigh those benefits today. If we want to have the 
permission and the privilege to keep using plastics in the mm -hmm. future, we need a radically different relationship with it. We need to simplify our use, reduce our use, and the, the amount that we do use, we need to put it in a closed loop and make sure that we or others are always reusing it, never leaks into the environment. That's just one example. Yeah. Climatically, we have to find a dramatically different relationship with the climate. Now, if you think for a retailer like Marks & Spencer, of course that's about producing energy use. Lighting in our shops, fridges in our shops, lorries trundling up and down motorways, yeah. they all need to be more efficient. But the true impact of a retailer does not lie there. It's in the supply chains that make our products and how consumers use those 3 billion items we sell every year. So the most important things that a Marks & Spencer can do, a mixed food and clothing retailer, stop food waste, shift to low-carbon refrigeration, stop deforestation in supply chains, encourage people to explore an alternative diet to meat. Mm -hmm. They're the things that make the most difference in terms of carbon footprint for a retailer. And yet most of the conversation around carbon is necessarily at the moment about electricity and renewables and energy efficiency. None of that's wrong, but we as a retailer to truly reduce our footprint by 80, 90% as we need to do over the next few decades, we have to change diet, we have to change um, commodity production, we have to change how people, how we store and shift food around, around the world. Those are the profound changes that we need. And what's the situation with diet? I think of diet, I think, okay, well, it's, maybe it's good to cut down on red meat because of cholesterol or health issues. Uh, but I read quite a bit these days about the connection between factory farming and, and uh, the environment. And, uh, and you briefly touched on shifting away from meat into alternatives. What's the deal? What's going on there? So, so right, right at the heart of what, what keeps us awake right now. So we are a meat-based business. We're a food retailer, sell 7,000 different, different food lines, many of which we're meat-based. We're very proud of that. They produce the highest standards by 7,000 beef farmers, for example, in the British Isles, all of whom we know. Yeah. Brilliant. Few retailers in the world can say that. And we want to keep selling meat into the future, but meat that has dramatically less impact than conventional or average meat today. Because average meat is associated with deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, animal welfare issues, human health issues. Mm -hmm. So to just keep on wanting to sell more of that by everybody on a planetary level is unsustainable. So what Mark Spencer wants to do is firstly offer its customers brilliant meat produced to the highest standards, good, good price point, great quality, fantastic environmental performance. That's not what anybody's got today. We need to move on from where we are today. The second thing we need to do is get people to explore an alternative diet. So we just launched a new range called Plant Kitchen. Mm -hmm. 50 products, vegan or veg suitable for vegan vegetarian diet. Fantastic customer response. Now, these issues have been around for a decade. Scientists have known about the footprint of, of, of meat and dairy production. But no one's ever been able to put a delicious alternative in front of the mainstream consumer. People who feel passionately about veganism, vegetarian, fantastic. They've embraced it. They've been brilliant. They've led the way. But if we're going to get the typical meat eater to either reduce flexitarianism or to replace mm -hmm. vegan vegetarian, we can't just assume that morality will drive them on. They right. also need to know that the products that they're buying into are fantastic, they taste good, they're at a good price point. It's an interesting, varied diet. And that's what not just Marks and Spencer, but many businesses are starting to do now with consumers and say vegan and vegetarian can be a brilliant, brilliant diet. So we offer in our stores... A fantastic alternative to meat, as well as fantastic meat. That meat must keep moving forward. And I think there's a real risk that we just tar all meat with the same brush. There are significant parts of the global meat system which are awful for the planet and animal right. welfare. There's other bits of the meat industry that we've got a lot to be proud of. They need to tell the story better. They need to explain how it, they are better than the norm today. 
and how they're going to keep better, getting better into the, into the future, not rest on their laurels. But the point being, as a food retailer, disruption's coming. And if you, you ask me what excites me, it's the fact that we're shifting from this old way of just reduced risk to this exciting world of alternatives. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't yet spoken about Elon Musk and Tesla. Right. For a decade, the car companies of the world have been getting 1% less bad each year in terms of CO2 emissions because there's rules. Whether it's US rules, European rules, whatever it may be. And people have just chugged along, sometimes breaking those rules, frankly. What happened with Musk turning up in the marketplace with a beautiful, high-performance, aspirational sports car that anybody would want to drive and Mm -hmm. own that also happens to be green? So for the 10% of consumers are passionately green, they're going to pry whatever it takes to buy a green vehicle. If you're going to get another 20, 30, 40, 50% of consumers to buy into, it has to be a beautiful, high-performance, aspirational car as well as being electrically propelled as well. And suddenly, all the car companies of the world are rushing to respond to marketplace forces that if you don't respond to, you're out of business. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the rules and regulations are important. They chivvy you along. They make sure that the bottom of the marketplace moves up. But really, what is an existential crisis now for existing car companies is air pollution rules, it's Tesla, it is driverless cars. It's a whole disruption to the marketplace. My point being, the same is going to happen to foods in the next two or three years. The same will happen to fashion in the next three to five years. Right. Both of which have got significant social environmental impact that have flown under the radar. People have been focused on power generation, coal-fired this, on vehicles. Actually, the biggest part of society's impact on planet and people is through the consumption of day-to-day products. Those have to change. So you want to own them because it's beautiful-looking clothing, great-tasting food, fantastic-looking performance car that is dramatically less impactful than today. And these everyday products that people are consuming, and people, I imagine, their lives are busy. They have things to do, many things to worry about. Whether something happens to be environmentally friendly or otherwise, some people would put that higher up on their priorities. Some maybe would put it a little bit lower. During our last conversation, you, you said to me, look, Alberto, it's getting to the point where some of these sustainable products uh, and you're referring to a meat alternative burger, are getting to the point where not only is it good for the environment, but the final product is arguably uh, just as good, if not better. And and I took your advice. I went to this burger place that you recommend. Honest Burger. Honest Burger. And I tried this um, vegetarian option, and it was delicious. It really was amazing. The flavor, the texture, even the aesthetics. It had like a, a, a red juice almost, which I understand is from beetroot. So tell me a little bit about that. Consumer behavior, apathy, which is a challenge for you, I imagine, and and the reality of these disruptive models that you're referring to as well in terms of how they're coming up with really great innovative things that are indistinguishable, if not better, than than the alternative. I mean, Alberto, you're spot on with that. And and let's just put a little bit of customer research in front of the listeners. So we know 10% of people are passionately green, self-motivated, self-starting. They look for organic, look for fair trade, MSC, FSC, and they'll pay extra for the greener products. They might compromise on product performance because it's the right thing to do. But that 10% hasn't shifted in the last decade, and we don't think it will dramatically change in the next decade ahead of us. Okay. What really interests us is the next 35% who we'd characterize as light green. They're worried about climate change, about human rights, about pollution, but they've got busy lives. They don't want to pay more for a product. They don't want to have to have a PhD to understand how to choose sustainably. 
But to your point, if you can put in front of a product that's actually better, mm -hmm. better looking clothing, better tasting food, better performing car, at the right price point, they'll absolutely preferentially buy that compared to the unsustainable bad option. There's a further 35% who are very worried about the future. And this mm -hmm. is going to be the slight bit digression to politics. But these 35% of people are worried about the future through the, the lens of locality. Right. Born in Pittsburgh, live in Pittsburgh, die in Pittsburgh. What's anybody doing for Pittsburgh? So before we start talking about climate change, this and deforestation, that and oceans over here, let's just ground it in Pittsburgh. What does it need in terms of education, healthcare, air pollution, cleanliness for the people who live there? And I think there's a real risk that an, a, a metropolitan elite try and create a, a vision of sustainability, which is actually very distant from day-to-day -day lives. So what Marks and Spencer needs to do, it needs to operate at these multiple different levels. It yeah. needs to work with a passion green uh, front guard. It needs to excite the light greens with great products. And it needs to reach out to its stores network to these these places, often left behind places, and said, we care about where you live, and each of our stores is making a difference where you live. So partly this is consumption-driven through product, partly through your behavior as a corporation, through both your website, but also through your physical mm -hmm. presence in people's lives. All of that is the totality of sustainable change. And who's driving who, I guess? Is it the consumers ultimately driving what hits the shelves? Is it you guys, with uh, obviously with a clear focus on sustainability, is it your supplier network? Are there regulatory factors down that pipeline? Yeah. What, what, who's driving what? So, so in, in some senses, Albert, it's all of the above. Okay. Some of it is driven by laws, some of it is by campaigning, some of that is by consumers out now asking for a change. But I would say the single most important, the most profound change here is a changing of the guard in terms of the demographics of consumption. All our research says that people under 45 have dramatically different expectations of business in terms of environmental and social performance. So whereas my generation, over 45, grew up... You're in, over 45? Uh, way <laughs> over 45, my friend. Very kind of you to try and spin it otherwise. Um, but for that generation that grew up in the 20th century and started consuming the 20th century, life was good. You had a job for life, a pension, rising house prices, economic and political stability. Life was good. And therefore, when you looked at business and said, I want business to do a little bit more for the planet and people, a little bit of organic on the shelves, a little bit of fair trade on the shelves, and a little bit of money to charity was enough. It just made sure you trusted business. Since the financial crisis of 2008, where there's never been a proper reckoning for those that caused it in society's eyes, people are becoming more and more skeptical about the motivations, behaviors of business. And this group of people are saying it's not enough for us me to trust M&S in, in an old way that, you know, my mm -hmm. mom trusted them in this distant parent-child sense. Prove it to me, M&S. Show me transparently what we're doing. So this week, we've just sort of surfaced publicly our tea and coffee supply chains all around the world. This is where the specific plantations we're buying from. We've already done that for seafood. We've done it for beef, 7,000 mm -hmm. beef farmers. We've done it for every factory and farm that we use around the world to produce finished goods for us. Hyper-transparency and expectation of this younger, let's just say millennial consumer of the future. And if, if there's one trend that's driving all of this above the law, above um, uh, campaigning, it is that passing of the baton to a new consumer on huge numbers, billions across the planet, right. who care passionately. And the final part of that then is 
and they are looking for products to satisfy their personal need, but the needs of the planet and society at the same time. The businesses that can provide for that win in the next decade. Those that don't lose. And those consumers, so the next generation, I suppose, are not only the consumers who are buying your products off the shelves, they're also the people whose nascent pension pots are being invested in the FTSE uh, corporates. I imagine, I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned a couple of times before, which strikes me, is that you said, well, you know, scientists have known for decades that this was a problem. We've known for a long time that plastics was a problem. But obviously, it's only now that things are shifting. I, my intuition tells me that maybe back then, not that long ago, shareholders were different and their uh, horizons were different. Long-termists perhaps were in the minority. Uh, so I guess now the shareholder base is a little bit more open to having these sustainable approaches to things? Yeah, and, and it's interesting because the shareholder base is definitely more energized at an institutional level. So mm -hmm. roughly 75% of M&S shares will be held by institutions, 25% by small shareholders, ex-employees, um, you know, pensioners, customers, etc. That 75% that's institutionally led is asking us more and more questions, but usually via shared platforms. We've, you've not really got individual big institutional shareholders breaking ranks and say we want a fundamentally different approach. Right. But around the SDGs, for example, they're increasingly saying, what's your policy on animal welfare? What's your policy on climate? What's your policy on, on, on marine environment? So you're getting letters through to the board who are taking notice of them, who wouldn't listen to their owners. But it's still a reasonably polite conversation. No one's divesting in a particularly aggressive way, apart from a few areas like coal around uh -huh. the edge of the sustainability debate. But you can look at where you are, for example, now on meat and say, meat might be the next coal in a decade's time. So you need to be ready for a very different approach. Actually, what's going to happen, I think, with investors is that they're going to get excited when they see better financial performance that businesses from businesses that are swapping into this new way of consuming. Mm -hmm. So as soon as your sales are going up because you have tapped into a vegan, vegetarian, electric vehicle world before your competition, that's when you attract preferential shareholding or investment. So yeah. there is, of course, a risk management part of the institutional shareholders saying, of course, we expect you to be a good business M&S like everybody else. And we do very well in the various benchmarks of the whole, fourth best in the world recently on, on human rights. But that doesn't move the dial. It's only when investors say, we're going to bring an extra slug of many millions of pounds to invest into you, M&S, because we can see you've got a pathway to grow sustainably in the way that your competition haven't. Mm -hmm. And that's the ball is in my court to prove to our investors that a pound put into Mark Spencer will lead to a better economic return because we're ahead of the curve on this one. Interesting. Fascinating, actually. And in terms of the disruptive models and the supplier base, where are most of the innovations happening? Are they happening with the larger outfits who supply chains like M&S? Or is it more the entrepreneurial spirit, the social entrepreneurial spirit, perhaps? You know, this podcast, one of the things we look at is social entrepreneurship. You touched on Tesla. Is that, is that part of the conversation these days? So, so again, reach, reach back to the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. and, and, and that first attempt to become um, a dramatically more digital economy. Partly it was about entrepreneurs coming. So we started right. to see the Googles, the Apples, the, you know, now the Netflix, all these multi-hundreds of billions of dollars uh, value companies emerging. But they were tiny. They were in somebody's back, sure. back room at that stage. Same time, big businesses like Walmart and M&S started to explore digital and transfer to try and transfer into this new economy as well. Some succeeded, some didn't. 
The same is going to happen with sustainability. So much of the brute innovation in this will happen in somebody's back room. So I've got a little spreadsheet upstairs uh, in the office. A thousand small enterprises around the world that are starting to do sustainable business. Many will fail. That's mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship. Some will become medium-sized. One or two might become the next $100 billion company in the, in the way that sort of Tesla's excited attention in the, in the mobility sector. All around us, the true innovation will be done by those entrepreneurs. Right. So if I think of Ever Everlane, the clothing company is working on hyper-transparency. Okay. If I think of rent the runway that's renting clothing now, a billion dollars a year turnover about getting clothing back, partly because it's super accessible and cheap and easy to use for the user, but the secondary environmental story of never throwing clothing away, brilliant. You've got businesses in the UK like Olio, which is starting to enable people to share food that was once going to be thrown away right. with neighbours. You've got businesses like Memphis Meat and Possible Meat who are coming up with these meat, meat alternatives now worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. That's where the true innovation comes. You're then starting to see some of the world's biggest FMCG companies starting to buy them up yep. because they can develop this product themselves or in the classical sense, they can just go in there, cherry pick what they want, bring it in-house and run the business. But all around us, there's a revolution happening in terms of what we consume, the products and services. So much will be driven by sustainability entrepreneurs. If we'd been having this conversation uh, a while back, I imagine there would have been somebody who does CSR, corporate social responsibility. It would have been a mid-level, somewhat risk-averse uh, managerial position. And maybe you could describe it as a lot of checkbook philanthropy in there. And these days, people like you, very senior management, sustainability, strategic alignment, things seem to have changed a lot. So I think as we're wrapping up, uh, today's podcast. It'd be really interesting to see how you've experienced uh, this space in terms of sustainability and corporate responsibility and how it's no longer a mid-level managerial function. It's actually a board-level uh, activity. Yeah, and, 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 and this, this is the whole point of our, our Plan A program. It's owned by the chief exec and the board because of its strategic importance to the business. But but let me just sort of wrap, wrap things up on a very human scale because yeah. I've spent you know that part of twenty years uh, making business less bad, and I need to reflect now as we go through this huge disruptive leap of the next two or three years from less bad business to fundamentally better business. Have I got the skill set to lead the next generation, or is it going to be some young whippersnapper listening to this just out of Harvard Business School, twenty five year old, ready to revolutionise and do yeah. things differently? And I look for six attributes in, in people who are going to ultimately do my job and take sustainability on to the next level. The first and foremost is EQ, it's people skills. Mm -hmm. Because most of the solutions we need exist. It's about convincing colleagues and customers and other people to use them. So it's first and foremost about emotional leadership. Second thing is about business knowledge. If you're going to transform, transform M&S from being an unsustainable business model to a sustainable one, first you need to understand how M&S ticked. If I had my bit career again, I'd be offered be a store manager for the first five years of my career or right. buy apples for the first five years of my career. I would just learn how business takes and then help change it. The third thing, of course, is intellect. You need a bit of IQ in this space. But you've got to be the translator of science, not the maker of science. You've got to be able to triangulate everything that's happening in terms of science, campaigning, policy, marketplace shifts, and turn it to something useful for Marx and to actually to do and win from, thirdly. Fourthly, you've got to build partnerships because you can build a sustainable future on your own. Of course, you want to win, but so much of this is about sharing with others as well. So a lot of work we do with the Consumer Goods Forum, tackle deforestation. M&S is tiny on a global scale. I've got to work with Unilever and Coke, Tesco's, Walmart, sure. many competitors. 
The fifth part of it is then is having a vision that says today is unsustainable. We need to get to this brilliant, shiny, sustainable place in the future. But then work back from it and come up with a practical pathway to get there. Lots of people dream about the future. Lots of people moan about the present, but not enough can actually link the two together mm -hmm. with a route map. And the sixth and final thing, and it's probably a nice place to finish, and you've got to be resilient and tough. Even in the most resilient, tough businesses, um, it is really, really difficult too. So, Alberto, that's Perfect. been brilliant. Mike, really thanks good so much for taking up. the time. Thank it's you. really great seeing you again and look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.